It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, the worst thing about doing Media Buzz in Los Angeles is having to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and drive to the bureau in the pitch black darkness. But the best thing about doing it there is when the show is over, it's 9 in the morning, the weather is gorgeous, and you can go to the beach, which I later did. Um, So I'm back now in swampy D.C., to commune with all of you about the issues of the day. We did interrupt the vacation one day last week to talk about the continuing mess in Afghanistan, and I will have a lot more to say about that in mere moments. A couple of light items here as I kind of ease back into the swing of things. A little bit of jet lag, so if I stumble over my words, give me you know grade me on a curve today. Uh, so it turns out that the uh, story I mentioned about a week ago, well, Rachel Maddow is considering leaving MSNBC, and she's going to do her own podcast and so forth, was the classic negotiating move by her agent. Uh, because she's now re-signed for several years a contract with MSNBC, which makes sense. You know, she's got a highly successful primetime show, top-rated person on the network. All the top executives came in probably, you know, when that story appears, probably like, uh, hey, uh, here's another $2 million. We, we, we love you here. We want you to stay. Uh, and she's not only going to continue to do her show, but she's going to have her own production company and NBC Universal will get the first look at the project she's coming up with. So um, that was probably inevitable. And, you know, whenever you read about so-and-so may leave, you know, sometimes it's a real threat and sometimes it's just designed to get the brass's attention. Um, Britney Spears' dad is uh, doing a little damage control, according to the London Sun. Documents show that he's been, you know, look, he's taken a beating in, in the sense of, he is the face of this horrible 13-year conservatorship that she's finally in the process of getting free from. So uh, in, in, in his court filing, he says he saved his daughter from disaster. Um, lawyer uh, on his behalf writing, if the public knew all the facts of Miss Spears' personal life, not only her highs, but also her lows, all the addiction and mental health issues that she has struggled with, and all the challenges of the conservatorship, they would praise Mr. Spears for the job he has done, not vilify him. And uh, there's a lot of deflection here about, well, you know, it was this other person who was her personal conservator who decided she should be on all these drugs, including lithium. And uh, it was somebody else who insisted, uh, who got $10,000 a month to handle those matters. Anyway, and then the weird thing uh, a few days ago was on her Instagram, Brittany posted a couple of topless pictures, which isn't that weird given that she's Britney Spears, but then she had this long sort of tangled explanation of why she was doing it because she felt free and she felt liberated in this, but I couldn't quite follow it, uh, and I was just there for the articles. Okay, so uh, let's get serious here because this morning the Washington Post reports that the director of the CIA, William Burns, held a secret meeting in Kabul uh, this past Monday with Taliban leaders. That would be yesterday. You can tell I'm a little... uh, Yesterday was Monday. Anyway, William Burns uh, meeting with Baradar, the highest-ranking Taliban person right now, to discuss sensitive diplomacy. The sources could not be identified. Um, Doesn't exactly say what they discussed, but what's going on here is a kind of a contest about who's going to blink first. Because 
The only good news in recent days on the Afghanistan front is that the U.S. has managed to ramp up the evacuation flights and more, uh, I think it's something approaching, you know, 15 or 20,000 people uh, getting out in the last 24 hours. That's good. Uh, on the other hand, August 31st, that's just a week from now. That's the deadline that Biden originally set for complete U.S. withdrawal of forces. And now there's a lot of pressure on the president because, you know, you can't get everybody out. It needs to be gotten out, not just Americans, but all of the Afghan interpreters and helpers and drivers and security people who aided our soldiers and, you know, who would be abandoned to obviously a, a very poor fate under the new extremist leadership. So Biden himself is under pressure from other world leaders to extend the deadline, but the Taliban has said, well, that's a red line. And uh, if you do that, uh, there will be consequences. Now, what's very obvious right now is that Joe Biden, who's blamed a lot of people but not the Taliban, is trying to walk a very fine line because all the Taliban has to do is start, you know, trying to close off access to the airport, uh, start shooting some people, and the whole American evacuation uh, uh, effort collapses. So he's trying to be diplomatic. I'm sure he'll have more to say once the evacuations are over. Uh, National Review not pleased with this, saying the U.S. has been humiliated by Islamic radicals who have killed and maimed Americans for 20 years. Uh, Biden needs the Taliban right now, and this is true. They control the fate of his presidency, have the power to determine whether he gets out of this to fight another day or whether he's the next LBJ or Jimmy Carter, whose presidencies were destroyed by the Vietnam War and the Iranian hostage crisis. And that is true. I mean, any chance that President Carter had of being reelected in 1980 died, I think, when the helicopters uh, malfunctioned in the desert, the one attempt to save or rescue the 42 Americans who were held hostage for a year was a horrible, humiliating episode for anybody who lived through that, and not to mention, you know, the hostages themselves. Uh, Biden said on Friday, we've been in constant contact with the Taliban leadership on the ground in Kabul. So it's not a secret that the U.S. has been talking to these people. Interesting, uh, as long as we're in National Review territory, uh, Rich Lowry, the editor, actually has some, I would say, grudging praise for the press, which, you know, has been really tough uh, on Biden, on Tony Blinken, on the spokesman, depending on Lloyd Austin. And in my own observations, I touched on this a little bit last week, I mean, the reporters have been really aggressive at these briefings. The anchors who have interviewed people like Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, uh, Tony Blinken, have pressed really hard uh, because of the magnitude of the debacle. It, you know, it really is unspinnable. There is no way, despite their best efforts, the Biden administration can spin its way out of the fact that this was, from beginning to end, a completely botched effort. Just because they're doing a little better now in evacuations doesn't mean that, that America should have been in this position in the first place. So Lowry says the White House and its allies are lashing out at what they are portraying as an insular uh, pro-war media, ignoring its many successes in the evacuation. Many successes. The White House is unfamiliar, he says, with what it's like to be on the receiving end of the kind of media feeding frenzy that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis experiences every other day. Joe Biden, in effect, set out to test how much shameless incompetence and dishonesty the media would accept. The answer, not nearly enough. The press is blatantly biased, says Lowry, and has become even more so over time. Uh, still, there are limits beyond which even it can't be pushed. 
And, you know, this has a little bit of the sting of truth. I mean, the first six months, look, Joe Biden had a, whether you're a Biden fan, you're not a Biden fan, he had a relatively successful first six months. That's why his approval ratings were over 50%. Uh, he, he was able to get a pretty aggressive um, vaccination program uh, started. The economy started to come back. Uh, and Afghanistan was not really a thing. Nobody was talking about it. Now we have the collapse in Afghanistan, the resurging in the Delta variant. And I saw one poll that said he'd gone down, uh, the president had gone down from 53 to 49%. Kind of stunning that that's all it is. We'll see what other polls say. Um, but the more important point here is that Biden ran on competence. He wasn't Donald Trump. He was experienced. He was certainly experienced in foreign affairs. He met with all these world leaders. And that has now been if, uh, at least tarnished, possibly shattered by the mishandling of Afghanistan and the idea that we close down Bagram Air Force Base and not get our civilians out before we pulled out most of the troops. And, of course, then he had to send back 6,000 troops. So at the briefing uh, the other day, White House uh, spokeswoman Jen Psaki was sort of dueling with Peter Ducey of Fox News. And Ducey said, there are no... Americans stranded is the White House's official position on what's happening in Afghanistan right now. And Jen Psaki said, I think it's irresponsible to say Americans are stranded. They are not. And then the press secretary said, I'm just calling you out for saying we are stranding Americans in Afghanistan. We have been very clear that we are not leaving Americans who want to return home. We are going to bring them home. Now, this is to some extent a semantic argument because Ducey didn't say, are you leaving them there? He said, aren't they stranded? And Saki is saying, no, of course they're not stranded because we will get them out. Well, then the next morning, the New York Times, not about this particular exchange, had a headline saying the Americans are stranded. Of course they are, because it is difficult to get to the airport. On Friday, the president told reporters, oh, I haven't heard any reports of being, being difficult to get to the airport. The next day, Saturday, the embassy said, don't come to the airport, it's too dangerous. And the evacuation flights were shut down for the day. They resumed on Sunday morning. So if you're an American who uh, you're, you're there with your family, you're, you want to get out, you haven't been able to get out, and you're worried about the dangers of getting to the Kabul airport, wouldn't you feel stranded? You might be hopeful that eventually you'll get out. Uh, there apparently have been a couple of missions that the White House is not discussing for understandable reasons where American troops have gone beyond the confines of the airport to rescue uh, certain Americans because the whole problem is getting to safe passage at the airport. But I don't think using the word stranded is, is, is really off the mark. Uh, John Kirby, the Pentagon press secretary, you see him up there getting hammered every day. He wasn't able to say how many thousands of Americans are still stuck in Afghanistan. Either he didn't exactly know or they didn't want to give a, a number or something like that. Um, but the problem is what Kirby is saying, what Blinken is saying, what Jake Sullivan is saying, and, sometimes, and what Jen Psaki is saying, and sometimes what the president is saying, all too often doesn't match the reality on the ground. That's why the press, uh, you know, is after the uh, Friday presser, when the president, for the first time, other than his uh, sit-down with Stephanopoulos, took some questions, there were every network, every major network did fact checks. Um, now, I think, in my humble opinion, 
Joe Biden would have been better served to say we made some mistakes. Not just that we nobody could have anticipated, not just that this was inevitable, not just that it would have been messy or difficult to get Americans out, whether we did it a month ago or six months ago or six months from now. Those things may be true. But clearly, clearly, significant miscalculations were made. And I, you know, Joe Biden is sort of like a straight talking guy. And he should acknowledge that and stop trying to defend the indefensible. We made mistakes. Now we're going to do better. We're, you know, I own it. He did say at one point, the buck stops here, the famous Harry Truman phrase. Uh, because it just opens the door when Biden and the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense and the National Security Advisor, you know, put an optimistic spin on events when we're all seeing the pictures. That's the problem. Uh, meanwhile, how's the pub- what does the public think about this? Um, CBS News, YouGov poll on Sunday. Uh, interesting. Overwhelming support for helping Afghan translators and others who aided the war effort. 81% of Americans say the U.S. should support those Afghans and help get them out. That's 90% of Democrats and 76% of Republicans who support such efforts. I mean, I don't know. If Donald Trump was president, wouldn't we also be trying to get them out? He would argue we would have gotten them out first, right? Um, also, though, the poll found that 63% approved of Biden's decision, approved of the U.S. pulling troops out of Afghanistan. But at the same time, obvious reality, uh, 44%, I'm surprised this number is not higher, said the removal of troops had been handled, quote, very badly. And 67% said President Biden failed to show a clear plan for evacuating American civilians. Um, uh, But here's Mitch McConnell uh, telling a Kentucky uh, TV station, about the Afghans who have been stranded there. We owe it to these people who are our friends and work with us to get them out safely if we can. Uh, By the way, Jake Tapper on CNN uh, played Saki's comments, the exchange I mentioned with Peter Ducey. And Tapper says, I understand that people are working long hours in the White House, the NSC, State, Pentagon, and over in Kabul to get Americans out of that country. And I understand the White House wanting to reassure the nation that all Americans will ultimately be evacuated. But there are no doubt Americans who feel stranded in Afghanistan right now. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, on the COVID-19 front, you know how uh, every day I was reading the number of new cases in America, and it started out at 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, then it hit 100,000. It's now at 150,000 new cases in the United States every day, getting toward the level of 200,000 plus, which was the peak of the pandemic. And hospitalizations in certain areas, uh, the death toll in certain areas creeping up as well. Thankfully, due to the vaccines, um, the death rates are nothing like what they were at the height of the pandemic. Yesterday, finally, you may recall a week earlier on Media Buzz, if you happen to watch the show or see it online, um, I did a, uh, you know, I can only call a rant at the top of the show saying I was fed up uh, with the FDA dragging its feet, the bureaucratic delays. And I said the president needed to push the FDA, not challenging the agency on the science, but approve the vaccines because a lot of people were saying that's why they were afraid to take it because it only had emergency approval. And Anthony Fauci said it was a technicality and everybody knew the FDA would do this, but it just wasn't getting done. I mean, the FDA, in effect, gave a green light for, what, 160 million plus Americans to get these vaccines? And it's going to come back and say, never mind, we were wrong, they're dangerous. No, it was not going to happen. 
So yesterday, finally, the FDA granting full approval to the Pfizer vaccine for those 16 and older. And that's now triggering, uh, you know, Biden, of course, came out and, and praised this decision. And uh, that means that the Pentagon can move ahead more quickly, not have to wait until September to require uh, vaccines for all of the people who work there, and particularly our, our brave soldiers around the world. Uh, in addition, certain city governments and, uh, and Biden is pushing state and local governments to, to take this permanent approval, at least of the Pfizer vaccine, uh, as a reason to mandate. I know that's controversial. A lot of people don't agree with it. More private companies are moving in that direction. United Airlines says employees will be required to show proof of vaccination within five weeks of the FDA action. Oregon has adopted a similar requirement for its state workers. Um and here's the acting FDA commissioner. By the way, shouldn't pointing an FDA commissioner, a permanent one, in the middle of a pandemic have been a higher priority? I mean, shouldn't it have been like Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, FDA commissioner? Uh, and I think that's been part of the problem. But the acting FDA chief, uh, who is Janet Woodcock, uh, said in the statement, today's milestone puts us one step closer to altering the course of the pandemic in the U.S. My only criticism here is nothing to do with the FDA. What is it that the Pfizer is now renaming this vaccine, something that nobody can either spell or pronounce. It's Comirnaty, C-O-M-I-R-N-A-T-Y. What kind of geniuses, marketing geniuses, PR geniuses, thought that that would be a good name? It rolls so easily off the tongue. I mean, all right. I, I just want people to get it. I don't care what it's called. Nobody's going to use that name anyway. Uh, I guess Moderna and J&J are still awaiting the final approval. Um, and this is a significant step, but I continue to believe, uh, yes, I know they had to go through all the paperwork and they had to visit the factories and so forth, but it just seemed to me there was not a sufficient sense of urgency about this. And in fact, here's a piece in The Atlantic. Although the approval uh, was the fastest in the agency's history, yeah, these things often take years, um, Nevertheless, anti-vaxxers are criticizing the accelerated process as rushed. Yet the problem with the FDA, says The Atlantic, is precisely the opposite. The agency too often fails to recognize the danger of being too cautious. Uh, so, for example, right now we have uh, the question of whether the FDA will authorize these uh, vaccines for preteens, let's say 12 to 16. And there's also a question about what about kids 5 to 11? And, and the argument of this Atlantic story is if you do nothing or you drag your feet or you let it go on for months and months and months, there are costs to that as well. Costs in terms of um, whether more of these kids, and we are seeing more children hospitalized tragically, could get COVID-19 and get seriously ill while they deal with their safety protocols. And again, you know, I believe in deferring to the scientists. I don't think politicians should be telling scientists what to do. We're talking here about the bureaucracy, why the bureaucracy moves so slowly. The article makes a point that I hadn't thought of. The early restrictions on COVID-19 tests. Remember when no one can get a test? Even now, you go and get a test, and it's hard to get the results in less than two or three days. Um, the FDA, FDA's guidance documents led to decreased availability of testing, particularly in the early stages of the pandemic, which continued to the catastrophic course of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. as a study in the Yale Law Journal. Um, and so 
the FDA's got to do a better job. I mean, all this stems from the 1962, I believe it was, thalidomide scandal where a drug was approved and it had horrible, horrible effects on people who took it. So, of course, an agency has to be cautious. Anyway, The Atlantic now has another piece today saying, no, the FDA was right to move slowly. So, you know, it's like coffee's good for you, coffee's not so good for you. Uh, meanwhile, I'll just briefly touch on this because uh, it, we're back to Groundhog Day. Now that Congress is back here in the nation's capital, there's a standoff between Nancy Pelosi and this group of House Democratic moderates. This was going on before I left for California, and it's still going on. Like nine of the House moderates, so-called moderates. I mean, they're liberals who aren't as liberal as, uh, you know, AOC and Bernie Sanders say that they don't want to approve the bipartisan infrastructure bill, you know, which miraculously Biden got 19 Republican senators to vote for this thing until they can also get from the Senate the three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation party line, all Democratic measure. One of the leaders of this group of so-called centrists is New Jersey Congressman Josh Gottheimer. He wants an immediate vote in the Senate on the on the bill. And so Pelosi is trying to work things out. Maybe they'll guarantee faster action on the $3.5 trillion bill. You know, the problem with the $3.5 trillion bill is that Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin have said there's no way they're voting for such an expensive bill. And I, obviously there's going to have to be some compromise there because the Democrats have no margin for error in the Senate. Any one of those senators can blow this deal up. Any one of the Democrats can blow it up by saying, we're just not, it's too much, too much money. Uh, Gottheimer said, if there's some sort of way to work this out, then of course we're working toward that. I've said that to the leadership. Um, his group is refusing to wait until December for the other big $3 trillion bill to pass. I mean, look, Biden's presidency pretty much depends on this. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine they won't somehow. I mean, we're talking here about something that's completely within the Democratic Party. There'll be some sort of face-saving compromise. The moderates will say, see, we stood up for a, a smaller approach, more modest approach. And nevertheless, Biden and Pelosi will get, and Schumer will get most of what they want. But, you know, it, they're going to drag this out because, you know, they get attention and it looks good for their constituents, that they're, uh, they care about the deficit. And, you know, I'm not saying that they're, I'm not saying that, that the uh, reservations that they have are not valid. I mean, three and a half trillion dollars after already passing, they would have already passed a one trillion dollar infrastructure bill, and after already after having already passed a two trillion dollar COVID relief bill, and there was the original COVID relief bill in the in the Trump administration. Um, you know, at this point, we're just printing the money. I mean, the the deficit and the debt are exploding, and it's good that some members of Congress care enough about that, especially Democrats. Um, to want to tap on the brakes. It means not just that I'm worried about inflation, I'm worried about just, you know, just this absolute tidal wave of red ink. You borrow, you borrow, you borrow, and then more and more of the money that the U.S. government spends, your tax dollars, goes to interest payments. That's how it works. Just like when you take out a mortgage on your home, you got to pay the interest. All right, let's go now to New York. Yesterday was the final day in office for Andrew Cuomo, who had announced his resignation a couple weeks earlier, in the wake of that Attorney General's report on how he sexually harassed 11 women. And so Cuomo was sort of going, down, going out swinging. He said in his speech uh, that he is leaving because of an intense, intense political pressure and media frenzy. 
that caused a rush to judgment, according to the New York Times, on sexual harassment allegations. Uh, here he is leaving uh, in the middle of his third term as governor. He likened the report to a political firecracker that started a political and media stampede, saying there will be another time to talk about the truth and ethics of the recent situation involving me. The truth ultimately is always revealed. The Attorney General's report was designed to be a political firecracker on an explosive topic, and it worked. And then part of the speech was about his own record as governor, and the kind of speech you would give you were just sort of leaving office when your term was up uh, routinely. Um, he talked about uh, he had rebuked the defund the police movement. He resisted attempts to demonize business. In other words, he's always tried to position himself as a business-friendly Democrat, who nevertheless, on all kinds of social issues, gun control, same-sex marriage, New York was one of the first states, marijuana and so forth, you know, is one of, was, has been one of the most progressive um, governors in the country. And it's kind of amazing, and I'll talk more about this tomorrow, having just been out in California, that in the space of a month, it is possible that the Democrats will lose both um, Andrew Cuomo in New York and Gavin Newsom in California, uh, to the recall in the middle of September. Also yesterday, um, uh, Kathy Hochul was sworn in. The lieutenant governor became governor. She's going to have a, she, she gave an interview in which she talked about, you know, she's now going to hit the ground running and tackle all these problems the state faces without the distractions of the sexual harassment probe. And I think she's going to give a ceremonial, have a ceremonial uh, swearing in today and give a speech. First female governor for 250 years, New York has had only male governors, uh, even as uh, other cities and states have had other women. It's interesting. The only um, black governor in New York history, David Patterson, was a lieutenant governor who succeeded the disgraced Elliot Spitzer after his sex scandal, and the only female governor now succeeding Andrew Cuomo after his sex scandal. Um, you would think, particularly in such a progressive state, that at some point, uh, a woman or an African-American might have gotten elected governor on his or her own, but it hasn't worked that way. Uh, Melissa DeRosa, who was the top aide to former Governor Cuomo, said he's exploring a number of options but has no interest in running for office again. All right, I'm going to uh, call BS on that. He's got plenty of interest in running for office again. The only question is whether it's practical. It probably isn't, in my view. Um... But, you know, no interest. So then a year from now, two years from now, four years from now, if he wants to come back and run for something, he says, well, I didn't have any interest then, but I have interest now. I mean, I just seems like a kind of a uh, pointless statement. And finally, the story that is trending everywhere about Cuomo, the story that I saw on a couple of websites is like the most read, has to do with Andrew Cuomo and his dog. His dog is named Captain. And uh, there are reports uh, from reputable news outlets that now that he's had to leave the executive mansion in Albany, he doesn't have a home to go to. I think he's crashing with one of his sisters in Westchester County. Cuomo has left the dog behind. I mean, seriously. Uh, one employee at the mansion Took the dog home for a few days, but the pup, who has nipped several people since Cuomo adopted him in 2018, proved to be too much, state police sources told, I think it's the Albany Times Union. The New York Post called Captain, 
a three-year-old Siberian Shepherd Malamute mix. Cuomo's only friend in Albany, after he was pictured at the governor's side as he tried to weather the storm of all those mounting allegations. The governor has regularly shown off the dog since adopting him, even in an Instagram profile photo. And now, what becomes of Captain? Now that he's no longer politically useful, Andrew Cuomo is, not, is, is, is pushing the captain overboard. He's leaving his dog. It's just, it's just so amusing. Now, you know, I'm not, it's, I'm telling you this story because it's funny. Maybe he, he can't take the dog because he doesn't have a place to live right now. Uh, I read somewhere that he's asked other staff members if they would like to adopt the dog and didn't get any takers. So apparently the dog is a handful. Um, but, you know, people love dog stories. And it was kind of like one last kick in the pants for the outgoing governor. Oh, he abandoned his dog. Uh, I'm sure there's a little bit more to it. I'm sure he likes the dog. Um, but, you know, famous Harry Truman line. He had a number of them. Uh, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Well, the, the New York Post picked up on that and saying the dog is or was Andrew Cuomo's only friend at Albany. So we'll see what the former governor does next. Uh, I mentioned on the podcast last week that Chris Cuomo uh, back at CNN, was finally able to speak out and said he didn't think he'd done anything wrong. He didn't cover the scandal. He didn't try to influence the coverage of the scandal. He did privately advise his brother to resign, confirming, you know, news reports in the New York Times and elsewhere. So that closes that chapter in New York history. And we'll see whether Kathy Hochul, you know, who would ha- will have to run for re-election uh, next November. So she's got about a year and three months, two months really, to establish herself, uh, both to win the Democratic nomination and to beat whoever the Republicans uh, put up. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, I have, uh, despite uh, clear feelings of definite jet lag, have made it through the podcast. I'll be a little smooth tomorrow. Uh, Get back into the swing of things. Once again, I thank you for listening. And since you haven't heard me say it for a while, you can get this podcast. You can actually get it delivered to you. Uh, on your Amazon device, you can get it at uh, Apple iTunes, you can get it at Google Podcasts, you can get it on Spotify, and we'll be back tomorrow with more Buzz Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.